Hello, everybody. Welcome again to Driving the Deal podcast, where Chris Whirling and I are walking through some of the most important issues driving the deal market in healthcare private equity these days. Chris, it's summer now. We have been very busy on a lot of fronts, haven't we? Well, yeah, I'd say we have had a real uptick in transaction processes in the healthcare space. I know a lot of the bankers we work with mentioned that the end of the second quarter and beginning of third, we would start to really see a lot of activity in the market. Market, and that has proved out to be very true. A lot of recent bid deadlines and a number of them upcoming on a wide variety of different types of healthcare companies from spanning from life science services to physician practice management. So the slowness, it wasn't terribly slow, but it was definitely slower than last year that we saw in kind of March and April has gone to the wayside and it looks to be a busy summer from a transaction perspective. We, we have less in-person events during the summer as people go on vacation. I know many of the health lawyers uh, that work with McDermott gathering in Chicago for the annual health lawyer meeting uh, where we learn about the latest and greatest updates of the wide variety of laws and regulations that impact healthcare companies. Uh, So always a a good time for us to reconnect with colleagues. And other than that, we'll be looking to get out on the golf course with some clients this summer until we resume our, our event schedule for the fall. How about you, Brian? What's going on in your world? You know, I agree with you. I think transactions are really starting to heat up. You know, I think like what we got was the usual kind of recollect, recoil the spring, uh, think about DC's uh, JP Morgan style pause. We just got it on uh, like a four to five week delay, mainly because there was no JP Morgan, but instead there was like six weeks of endless Zoom meetings with everybody. Yeah, I think the back half of this year is is, uh, is very busy on a number of, of healthcare fronts. Lots to talk about. So today we have a very interesting and relevant topic, and that's the issue of antitrust in healthcare. What with the new administration and their FTC and a lot of activity on that front. So, uh, Chris, why don't you uh, talk about our guest today? Yeah, I'm extremely excited that we've got Ashley Fisher, my partner here in Chicago. Ashley is a specialist in healthcare antitrust specifically, so she really works with a wide variety of healthcare providers and health industry participants in their collaborative efforts in transactions, as well as in compliance counseling and making sure people stay out of antitrust issues. I think one of the more interesting things that Ashley works on that we can let her speak about a little bit is the nuances of managed care contracting networks, accountable care organizations, and clinically integrated networks, which have some special rules in the antitrust world that allow competitors to collaborate in unique ways. So Ashley, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Chris. So I wanted to start out, we are over a year, about a year and a half into the Biden administration and the FTC last summer, I think, put out an executive order on competition that focused a lot on healthcare. What have you seen come from that executive order now that we're a year into it? What kind of actions have they taken and what what's maybe to come still? Yeah, so I, I want to start with, with what that executive order was. I mean, it, it, at a high level, it was really a detailed roadmap for antitrust policy. And in in that document, President Biden really directed a variety of agencies to, you know, re-examine policy in particular areas. So uh, with respect to the FTC, President Biden asked them to take a look at their merger guidelines to see if they were, you know, appropriately addressing competition issues 
And in terms of updates and what's happened in the past year, um, the DOJ and FTC have then subsequently announced that they are reviewing their guidelines to see if they appropriately address modern day markets. They also then issued a request for information, um, which is a process through which they sort of build policy consensus. So it gives folks um, in the industry an opportunity to submit comments. They received a number of, I think thousands of comments on that comment period is now closed and we can expect sort of a proposed revised guidelines at, at some point. And this order came out from Lena Khan, the new FTC chair. She's about a year into her tenure. What's her background? What is she like? And what kind of drives a lot of her thinking around competition? specifically in healthcare. Yeah. So, you know, like any new leader, right? She brings her own ideas to, to the commission and, and new ideas. I think it's fair to say that she's viewed as a progressive when it comes to antitrust theory. She wrote a, a law review article when she was in law school that current antitrust laws are not adequate to address online marketplaces such as Amazon and the like, and that they need to be, the antitrust laws need to be sort of revamped to properly address competition issues in today's economies and digital economies. So she brings definitely novel theories that I would put in the progressive camp. So she became chair about a year ago, and she has said that, you know, she will look at the role of middlemen, private equity in deals and sort of labor markets and these other areas that we really hadn't historically seen great interest in. I wanted to talk about a couple of kind of what's going on in some different areas that the FTC has typically monitored closely. One of those areas is hospital consolidation. Um, you know, historically, the FTC has been very active in making sure that there are multiple hospital competitors in different markets. That definitely has an impact on some of our listeners who are investors in healthcare. As we've watched you know, hospital systems grow larger, it seems like the FTC maybe hasn't had as much success in stopping some of these larger consolidations. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about the, the developments and how the FTC is looking at hospital consolidation specifically. Yeah. So that latter point is certainly the policy position of President Biden and the current commission. So in back to the executive order last summer, um, so as you mentioned, healthcare was one of the priority areas identified for antitrust enforcement. Um, within healthcare specifically, hospital mergers were called out um, as you know, an area that should be closely examined going forward. There was a fact sheet that accompanied the executive order that spoke to, um, you know, hospital mergers, particularly rural areas, leading to reduced access and higher prices for patients and consumers. And so great interest in, I think the quote was unchecked mergers leading to these, these competition issues. So the, you know, I would say the FTC, I think, has always taken a great interest in hospital mergers. Um, I mean, before the current administration, there are a number of challenges in recent years. The FTC this year alone, however, has issued three complaints in hospital murder transactions, and all three parties elected to walk away from the transaction following the issue of issuance of the complaint. Um, you know, that, of course, you know, a variety of reasons why parties choose to do that. It's, it's a very expensive and lengthy process in litigation and an administrative complaint process to fight those battles. It seems like we're still seeing these large cross-state 
systems form without much challenge. So the three transactions, one was in Rhode Island involving two hospitals in Rhode Island. Another was in New Jersey involving two hospitals, allegedly both in the same county in Middlesex County, New Jersey. And then the third was involving larger hospital systems in the greater Salt Lake area of Utah. So that would be more regional. But these three particular challenges haven't been cross-market. The cross-market is a, is a theory, mostly in the economic, academic literature, that raises the question of whether where you have hospitals merging where they aren't in the same geographic market with respect to patients, but they are you know, contracting with the same customers, that is payers, that you can create this you know, cross-market. So whether it's you know, regional or statewide or perhaps across states, if you have the same payers in multiple states, you can create this sort of market power. We did see a hospital merger, the Spectrum merger in Michigan a year or two ago was allegedly held up in a second request review over that cross-market issue, but that eventually closed. So are you surprised that people uh, backed away from, from some of these challenges? Because you know, the other thing that's been true is that while the FTC has definitely focused on hospital concentration for, for quite a while, their track record at litigating against those mergers is pretty mixed. Yeah, it's a good point. From my, I have no personal knowledge of the reasons why those parties walked away, but I will tell you it's extremely expensive to fight these challenges. And so I think for anyone facing that prospect of two to three years of litigation, it's a question of, is this how we want to spend our time and our money going forward? Yeah, an interesting follow-on on that is that, you know, there was a recent settlement in on another FTC complaint recently, and I believe that predated Lena Khan coming in there. And one of her comments about that was, is that while they were honoring the, the settled agreement, she said something to the effect of, you know, she prefers litigation as her main route of, uh, of activity. So how do you think about that in terms of various healthcare verticals going forward for the next few years? You know, if I were the FTC and I thought, you know, I don't like this transaction and if I challenge it, they might walk away for solely because they don't want to spend the time and the money to challenge it then, you know, the FTC views that as a win. So one of the things that FTC has been looking at in the hospital space, I know, Ashley, is uh, the impact of hospital systems acquiring physician groups. Could you tell us a little bit about what they're looking at there? I think they kind of issued some data requests and so forth last year. What what could come from that? Yeah, so two, two separate issues. So there's, you know, there's always a question of the vertical theories of competition. So if you have hospitals acquiring physician groups, are there, you know, vertical theories of harm from, you know, reduced input or reduced access to competitors to those physicians and, and the like. So that's always been an issue. Um, the agencies did withdraw their vertical merger guidelines last year, year after they issued them. So that in terms of exactly how they will look at vertical mergers, that's an open issue right now. The other issue is they are conducting a retrospective study of physician practice acquisitions. A retrospective study is one where they look at consummated mergers and they look at actual competitive effects. So they have subpoenaed, the FTC has subpoenaed claims data from a number of insurers in, in numerous states, and they, for the purpose of examining whether, you know, prices right, uh, rose after the consummation of these physician practice acquisitions. Now, 
we saw a retrospective study of hospital mergers in the early 2000s, and that led to a retrospective challenge of a consummated hospital merger that was then called Evanston Northwestern Healthcare and now North Shore University's um, acquisition of Highland Park Hospital, challenged a number of years after that transaction closed. So, you know, it's possible that we could see some retrospective challenges of physician practice acquisitions. Like anything, I think that, you know, the focus is on were there actual anti-competitive effects of those transactions, namely price increases, negotiated price increases following the consummation of those transactions. And I mean, you can assume where they, you know, see bad facts, those are the cases they will focus on. So Ashley, you know, we talked about hospitals obviously have been one area in healthcare where the FTC has vested itself more than than one administration. But, you know, this, uh, this administration seems to be moving elsewhere in healthcare as well. And talk about a little bit about kind of the areas that they've they've announced that they're examining. Yeah. So when Chair Khan took over last summer, she sent a memo to other commissioners and staff sort of outlining her priorities. And in one of those, she said that she wanted to focus on, you know, business models that centralize control and profits, and that those weren't particular scrutiny. And she also said that the role of private equity and other investment vehicles invites us to examine how they may facilitate unfair methods of Competition. So I took note at both of those. It's not just let's look at, you know, PE in the, the broader merger context, but also this, you know, the role of private equity with respect to unfair methods of competition is, as you know, the FTC has the authority to enforce all the antitrust laws. And there are a variety of them, not just the, you know, merger statutes. There's also, you know, conduct and other antitrust um, prohibitions. So I, I took note of those. The staff subsequently issued a statement that in their second request, they were also going to be looking at the role of private equity and how investment firms may affect market incentives to compete in their second request for information. So we are seeing some of these sort of new areas filter into staff policy and, and investigations. Another area is labor markets. And, and that is something that came up in the Rhode Island hospital merger challenge was looking at the FTC was looking at labor markets and more specifically with respect to nurses. So that's also a new area that we're, we are seeing in terms of merger investigations and lines of inquiry. On your side of the firm, you guys are often giving, you know, clients legal advice on how to think about things. And you know, obviously private equity and healthcare, you know, they're going to continue to invest. They're continuing to acquire things and, and roll up and, and innovate. If you're advising a client, you know, in, in, in the PBM space or they're doing PPM roll-ups and the subject of the FTC comes up, I mean, how should they think about about that in terms of just pairing for randomness? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, in, until there are new merger guidelines, I think it's fair to say, look at the guidance in the merger guidelines. I mean, the agencies and, and the antitrust law, right? I mean, <laughs> that has not been overturned. There might be new theories and new lines of inquiry, but the antitrust law is clear that the standard, the current standard, and of course, there are pro proposals in Congress to change the standard, but the current standard is that a, um, you know, the Clayton Act, Section 7, prohibits only those transactions that would tend to create a monopoly or substantially reduce competition. So the question always is, in, in the roll-ups, is there, are these, you know, you acquiring another practice that's in the same market as an existing practice? And then what are, you know, who else is available to provide care? And uh, so that's a function of market shares and market concentration, but it's that traditional analysis. So if, if there are strategic transactions, 
transactions with in-market competitors. I would say doing that sort of advanced planning on the front end to know whether there are potential issues so that you can take that into account and the potential you know, feasibility and cost and timing of a deal is an important piece. One question on that front, the way markets are evolving, is the FTC accepting any evidence or arguments around competition from digital health providers who may be able to provide very similar, if not identical services, but are competing across all 50 states and not just in a local market where patients are bound to travel? It's a really good question. I'm not sure that it's one that's been completely answered. I think you know, it's it's a very strong argument to make, particularly where there's reimbursement, um, and you have you can show that patients are in fact uh, receiving care from these digital providers. Um, you know, one issue always is is the data, right? And what what evidence do you have to to support that? Um, it's you know, with hospital mergers, there's often you know these databases that are publicly available of inpatient claims, and so it's fairly easy to obtain that data with you know physician visits. It's it's more difficult to obtain that data. But I think the really good arguments in the question is you know what data is available to support those arguments in terms of the extent of that competition. That makes sense. So you mentioned a minute or two ago, you know, some of the preparation to do when evaluating a deal. Could you give some of our listeners a few of the basics of what they should be cautious on as they move towards a transaction? I know specifically when we have a transaction that's over the HSR reporting threshold, the clients on both sides, the buyer and the seller, will need to provide some documents to the FTC. What kinds of what kinds of prep should both buyers and sellers think about on that front? Yeah, so so two comments. So you know, we know that private equity and healthcare, right, are focus areas of the, the current administration. And so I think any transaction involving healthcare and more specifically, you know, private equity transactions in healthcare or hospital mergers, they're going to get a close look. And we also know you referenced the documents, the HSR filing requires the parties to submit what are called item four documents, which are documents that pertain to the transaction that were created by our foreign officer or director that pertain to the effect of the transaction on, you know, markets, competition, expanded services, and the like. And so, you know, knowing that those documents will be reviewed, I think it is critical. What are the parties saying about why it is they want to do this deal and what benefits they expect from the deal? It's reasonable to assume that if the benefits are articulated as well, we can raise prices you know, 30% above a competitive level and uh, have this great return because we will you know, have all of the, the physicians in the relevant area and payers will have no choice but to contract with us so we can set our rate. It's reasonable to assume that, that that will be flagged in a review. Conversely, if there are other, you know, legitimate business reasons for, for doing a deal that don't raise what are considered to be anti-competitive effects, of course, increase in price, reduce quality competition or access, then that's factored into account as well. That makes sense and is a helpful guidelines for our, for our listeners, hopefully. One last area of competition I, I wanted to chat about was competition in the labor market. There's a ton of focus right now on staffing shortages and labor issues for you know all industries obviously but i think healthcare is really feeling the pinch there was a recent case involving healthcare executives and no poach agreements 
Can you tell us a little bit about what, what is a no poach agreement? You know, what are some kind of words of caution or guidelines that healthcare companies should keep in mind as they engage in recruiting and possibly speak with competitors about recruits? So wage fixing is a form of price fixing um, that can be per se unlawful under the antitrust laws if, if two competitors are just uh, getting together and, and agreeing on the prices that they're going to pay their respective employees. I will note here, because this is a question I get often, you don't have to be competitors who are providing the same healthcare services in the same geographic market to be considered competing employers necessarily. You know, competing employers would be if anyone who, if a given employee was reasonably, you know, choosing between two different employers, they could be considered to be competing employers. So the, the no poach cases allegedly focus on whether you have, you know, different employers who have agreed not to solicit each other's employees. Now, where you have some type of legitimate arrangement between the companies, like an outsourcing arrangement or a vendor arrangement, it's um, historically been considered, you know, ancillary, that is reasonably necessary to protect a legitimate business interest. If you're, you know, providing an employee to another um, employer, you wouldn't want them just hiring that person out from under you, recruited that person, you've trained that person, that person might have, you know, competitively sensitive information about your business. Um, and so those no poach agreements in, in that context have, have generally been viewed to be reasonable. Um, the no poach cases that have come up lately that are allegedly, you know, criminal in nature are those that the agencies view to be per se unlawful. That means there's no legitimate business reason between the parties why they would have a no poach agreement. They just don't want to have to, you know, compete for those same employees with one another. So the agencies have a number of investigations and have brought several cases. They've um, just lost one uh, involving a uh, CEO of a dialysis company, but there, there are also several others that are still pending. A related question impacting the labor markets is how the FTC and other regulators are viewing non-competition agreements or restrictive covenants that place restrictions on employees working for different employers in the same industry. Have there been any developments on the enforceability of restrictive covenants? Yeah. So this, the issue was raised in the executive order. And I think at a policy level, the concern is that there have been non-competes that have been overbroad um, and restricted the ability of employees to switch jobs. We have seen the agencies take interest in certain cases involving non-competes. There was one out west where they they weighed in on that case as well. I think it's all it, it's similar to the no poach. It's a question of where a non-compete is. I mean, I still think it's ancillary analysis. So where a non-compete is reasonably necessary to protect legitimate business interests. So the employee has, you know detailed, competitively sensitive information and knowledge about your business. And it would bring great harm to you if they then walked across the street and brought all that knowledge to a, um, a competitor. You know, it seems to me that there's still a legitimate business interest there. Where the concerns tend to lie is where non-competes are being, you know, are restricting employees who aren't necessarily in that situation, who don't necessarily have access to detailed, competitively sensitive information about a business. So more like rank and file employees and the like. And so I think that's probably where we're going to see a lot of focus. That makes a lot of sense. Well, Ashley, thank you for joining us on the podcast today. It certainly is an area that seems to be in great flux, clients and investors 
doctors in the healthcare industry seem to be able to plan ahead, take some precautions in advance in order to prepare for a potential FTC review. And it also seems that we'd recommend continued focus on different compliance areas, including you know restraints against competition, so forth with employees to stay out of the ire of the FTC. So <laughs> thank you for joining us. Uh, Brian, any closing remarks from you? Yeah, thanks, Ashley. That that was very, very relevant. Obviously, you've got a big transaction going on and you're worried about running into the FTC and having some trouble there. I know who to call. So thanks, everybody, once again, and we will talk to you soon. This material is for general information purposes only and should not be construed as legal advice or any other advice on any specific facts or circumstances. No one should act or refrain from acting based upon any information herein without seeking professional legal advice. McDermott, Will & Emery makes no warranties, representations, or claims of any kind concerning the content herein. McDermott and the contributing presenters or authors expressly disclaim all liability to any person in respect of consequences of anything done or not done in reliance upon the use of contents included herein. Copyright 2022, McDermott, Will & Emery. All rights reserved. Any use of these materials, including reproduction, modification, distribution, or republication, without the prior written consent of McDermott is strictly prohibited. This may be considered attorney advertising. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome.